please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is presented by the Space Camp Explorers Club, a new way to support the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp. Members of the Space Camp Explorers Club gain exclusive access to content, behind-the-scenes stories, and members-only swag. To learn more, visit SpaceCampExplorersClub.org. I don't remember this, but my mother says that when I was very, very little, that I was looking at the stars and I pointed to one and I said, I want to go there. I want to I want to learn about that. I had an interest in science and an interest in space. And of course, we were living during the 60s, the excitement and the adventure of Apollo. I said I wanted to be an astronomer, but I do, I'm not good at chemistry, physics, or math. So that kind of that kind of eliminated that career path. Right. Uh, but it turns out I got to fly in a real starship anyway. So there you go. Like Denise said, uh, I grew up as a child of the era of Apollo. And I grew up watching uh, Neil Armstrong and the other astronauts walk on the moon. Uh, I, I enjoyed science fiction. I enjoyed Star Trek. I read science fiction books. Uh, it would be cool to be an astronaut, but uh, well, okay, I'm probably not physically qualified to do that. Uh, I found an outlet uh, working in science fiction television. Husband and wife duo Michael and Denise Okuda have worked in science fiction television for more than three decades as graphic designers, artists, and technical consultants. Together, they have worked on six Star Trek films, as well as Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, even writing the Star Trek Encyclopedia. Michael has designed several NASA mission patches, and they are currently consultants for the Netflix series Space Force and the Apple TV Plus series For All Mankind. I'm Ryan Ferricelli. Join me as I learn what makes these extraordinary individuals dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. So you actually met while you were both working on Star Trek then? Star Trek The Next Generation. Michael likes to say that Max Headroom introduced us. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Uh, Denise was consulting with our production designer on some some medical technology questions for uh, sickbay. And she was walking through the art department. And on my bulletin board over my desk, I had a little figurine of uh, the character Max Headroom. And Denise is a big Max Hedron fan, so she said, oh, look at that. <laughs> Whose desk is this, I said, actually. <laughs> uh, and it was Mike's, and um, anyway, one thing led to another, and here we are. Let's talk a little bit about how you ended up there. I grew up in, in Honolulu, Hawaii. I um, went to Roosevelt High School and attended the University of Hawaii. I did some early work in uh, uh, in uh, community theater and ultra low budget television commercials. But I was working as a graphic designer at a um, at a local medical center, doing newsletters and slideshows and whatever else a medical center needs. About that time, uh, the Star Trek movies were coming out, 
I remember looking at the Enterprise Bridge in Star Trek, the motion picture, and they, it was a it was a very, very cool, sleek, futuristic design. And they had these round computer screens. You look at the graphics on them and they're they're ordinary rectangular graphics. And I'm going, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> if, in the future, if in the future they have round screens, clearly there must be a logical reason for that. Right. What might that reason be? What might those graphics look like that that um, what, which is why you would have a round screen? So I did some sketching, and uh, after a while, I was, just, I was just having fun. And after a while, I thought, oh, this is something they might want to use. So I uh, I made xeroxes and put it in an envelope, and I sent it to Gene Roddenberry and Harv Bennett and uh, and those people uh, at Paramount Pictures. Basically saying, if you ever do a start, if you ever do another one, um, you should think about doing this. Right. A few months later, I got a phone call from uh, Ralph Winter, who was associate producer on Star Trek Three, and said, "Hey, um, uh, you know, we're gonna do a, we're gonna do a Star Trek Three. Uh, we're already staffed up, uh, but if we ever do a Star Trek Four, I'll give you a call." <laughs> wow. And I thought, wow, that's the nicest brush off I've ever gotten. <laughs> And two years later, in fact, they made Star Trek IV, and Ralph gave me a call and uh, said, hey, do you want to work on it? And that's not a question you have to ask twice. (laughs) I had a very different story. I actually um, went to college and and got a Bachelor of Science in nursing and practiced nursing. And a friend of mine on Next Generation um, in the production office said, would you come by and um, talk to the production designer and some of the illustrators. I was a Star Trek fan mm-hmm. as well, which helped. Um, what do you see as a sick bay of the future? This was, you know, pre- this was early in the show. And uh, so I went and I had a meeting with Herman Zimmerman, who's a production designer, and Rick Sternbach and uh, Andy Probert illustrators uh, about what I saw as 24th century medicine. And then I went back up to the art department and you know the Max Hedrum story. Right. <laughs> um, so fast forward, um, on the weekends I would go up to Paramount and I'd see Mike and work with him and he would teach me stuff. And and then when Star Trek uh, Six came around, Herman Zimmerman hired me to work. And from there I worked Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and we did a feature every other year. So we worked, our life was, for for a while, was completely Star Trek. It was great. I mean, we were Trek fans, and we worked with a, a great group of people in the art department, specifically um, Michael's uh, graphics department. People, you know, that were just like us, that loved Trek, that loved science fiction. And so it was a really good experience. A couple of us who were uh, space geeks on the show uh, myself, uh, Rick Sternbach. We, in our, uh, in our audacity, took it upon ourselves to write technical memos to Gene Roddenberry, telling him what he should be doing in his uh, in his in his TV show. Roddenberry, instead of firing us, uh, said thanks, and he kept. Uh, they, they started using that that stuff. Wow! And even, eventually, um, uh, the uh, the showrunner uh, Mike Pillar said, you know, we, we want to make you, uh, we, we want to give you that as a formal title. So uh, so in addition to being designers on the show, uh, we also were uh, got to be tech consultants. And eventually we compiled a lot of those memos in, into an internal document, internal use for the writers. And, that be, and 
that got onto the fandom. So, um, so Pocket Books approached us and said, "Hey, do you want to write a technical manual for, uh, for publication?" So, even though it was based on a lot of the same material, it was an all-new work. After the tech manual came out, the editors um, Dave Sturden and uh, and Kevin Ryan approached uh, Denise and I and said, "Hey, do you want to do another project?" And coincidentally, at about that time, we weren't part of this meeting. But there was a meeting in Gene Roddenberry's office where Roddenberry was was concerned. It was difficult to keep the events and sequences and dates of the Star Trek timeline uh, to keep it consistent. You're doing uh, 26 episodes a year for Star Trek: Next Generation. Plus, they were publishing novels. Plus, they were doing comic books. And so, there was uh, you know when did the Federation form? Uh, uh, who was captain before before Kirk? All the, all those kinds of things. And it was. If you're a Star Trek fan, you know the stuff. If、uh, if you're if you're a writer coming in, you may not know that. Right. And and then there's all these random data points that, that have been established by by episodes. Well, you know,、uh, did Trelane see this, or did、um, or did the Klingons do that? So it was as Star Trek got more and more complicated, it, be, it became a serious issue. And finally,、um, someone said. To Rodney, you know, what do we do? And someone in the meetings said, "Well, you should get someone to write down these things and come up with、uh, with a standard cr-、uh, chronology."、Uh, and well, who should do it? And, and Gene volunteered us. <laughs> so our first reaction was, I don't "How hard? How hard can it be?" <laughs> well, our first reaction is, I, I didn't, I didn't think it could be done. So we started building a spreadsheet. This event. When did it happen? How do you know when it happened? So you have this chain of logic, and frankly, what we were trying to do is we we're trying to prove that this didn't make any sense. You couldn't do this because <laughs> a lot of it was semi-random, right? But after a few pages, what we started to realize, you know, this kind of hangs together. This makes more sense than than we thought. So we kept going, and and eventually we、uh, we said to Pocket Books, we want to do that book. That that book came out. It was the Star Trek chronology. And then Kevin Ryan, the editor at the time, called us and says, "How would you like to do an encyclopedia?" And our response was, "We we we had actually gone through all the episodes that were done to that point, and had figured out essentially not quite everything that happened, but a lot. And we realized that an encyclopedia is essentially the same database sorted by date." So we looked at each other and said, very foolishly, "How hard can it be?" <laughs> and we did these books while we were working on two TV shows at one time and doing a feature every other year. When I say we, our life was Star Trek. It, you know, it was, but it was also very convenient because, like, at three o'clock in the morning, if both of us were awake, we could say, "Hey, you know, I just had this thought." <laughs> so.、Um, But yeah, we we did a couple of books.、Um, the last one we did was in 2016. It was a double it was a double volume Star Trek encyclopedia because we had so much information. That took us up to I think the second Abrams film and the rest of Voyager. And, yeah, and so Enterprise, and, and Enterprise and Enterprise and Enterprise and some stray DS9 episodes we hadn't done. Yeah, so we tied it all up, kind of to that point. <laughs> And walked away. <laughs> <laughs> Experience.
experience Dare to Explore Milestones to Mars, the all-new exhibit sponsored by Lockheed Martin at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Dare to Explore Milestones to Mars takes visitors on a six-decade journey of space exploration and looks at the innovation that has prepared humans to land on the moon and go beyond. Especially designed for young visitors with school groups and families, this exhibit includes interactive displays and activities that demonstrate how we will live and work in space. This experience is included with your U.S. Space and Rocket Center general admissions. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today. You've actually ended up working on like all of the classic Trek shows, right? Because you were on DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise, the movies, and then eventually you got to work on the original series as, par- as part of the remastering. Well, I guess the, the, the obvious question is, which is your favorite? <laughs> oh, for, I, think, I think for both of us, uh, it's, it's got to be the original Star Trek series. That's yeah. what so we grew up with. That was, uh, that was Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future that inspired both of us. Uh, with the adventure, with the technology, with the, uh, the, the optimistic sense of uh, uh, we can go forward and we can, we, can, we can be good, we can learn, we can improve life for all of us. And, uh, and it can be cool. And also, there's a big difference between watching a television series as an entertainment and working on it. I mean, we can still enjoy it, but it's a totally different animal because you're seeing it through the eyes of a fan of Star Trek, of course, but you already know what's going to happen. You all know the background. You you know the, the blood, sweat, and tears it took to get this particular element. We worked so hard on this element, and it ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, yeah, this it's all... totally different. When you, when you look at it, and if you, when you look at something that you worked on, you second-guess yourself. You go, you know, I really should have made that a little bigger, or, well, I, I wish, wish we had the money to do that. <laughs> Whereas when, uh, when someone who didn't work on it uh, looks at it the same. That's what that's what it is, and you, and you you tend to accept it, right? So it's it's not it's not that we don't enjoy it, but uh, we didn't work on the original series, at least not the original productions, and and that's the one that fired our imaginations. Were you able to work on the trials and tribulations episode of DS Nine? Oh yes, absolutely. That was an amazing experience. We usually only have like ten working days before we start filming. It's it's a very fast process. The writers knew that this was going to be a very tough show, and so we got more lead time, but everybody just jumped in with both feet. Uh, I mean, everybody was really excited uh, about doing this episode. Yeah, even people who weren't necessarily Star Trek fans, they knew this is special, so they gave 110%. Yeah. Uh, Doug Drexler, our co-worker, who is a big Star Trek fan, he planted himself in front of a, a VCR and we had a f- little frame grab Polaroid machine and he did hundreds and hundreds of, of, of frame grabs so we could uh, so we had reference so that when a guy from construction would come come down and say, hey, uh, you know, how, how did this door work with with uh, with that frame? Uh, Doug would say, here's a, here's a frame grab, build it like that. Uh, one thing that was very cool was remember, this is back in the day when the original Star Trek series was uh, was only starting to come out on DVD, and those were, you know, frankly, very old scans. So uh, visual effects supervisor uh, Gary Hutzel went in and he did for the first time he did high def scans 
of Star Trek original series film. And we were just blown away at the color, at the richness of, uh, uh, of those sets. But you could also reveal details that weren't at all obvious when you first saw it. Like th there was a scene where we, you saw uh, Nemo walking down the corridor, or Spock walking down the corridor, and you see that Leonard Nemo had had spilled coffee on his costume. <laughs> and you, and you, you couldn't see it in, uh, uh, previously, but suddenly, there it yeah, is. Yeah, and there was a stain right in front of the captain's chair. I mean, things that we, you just couldn't see, you couldn't resolve. It, in standard diff, uh, television, and then also the fact that you know the DVDs, or whatever, were degraded down and down and down, and so um, we saw things that we'd never seen before. It was um, <laughs> it was quite quite eye opening. And everybody knew how special this was, and of course our producers were excited about it. Uh, one day, our executive producer Rick Berman called called me and said, "We want to do something to to salute the people who did the original show. Uh, what do you suggest?" And I had remembered reading a story, the, the guy who wrote the original Trouble Triples, uh, David Gerald, that he had wanted to appear in the original uh, as an Enterprise crew member. And in fact, had written a, a line for himself, but uh, for whatever reason, that, that didn't work out. So I said, Rick, uh, call David. I'll, I'll bet he would love to be an Enterprise crew member. <laughs> and in fact, uh, in the Enterprise uh, corridor sets, you can you can often see him in the background. Usually, he's a guy walking slowly, so he's on camera as long as possible. <laughs> he's in a red shirt. Yes. I, the night before uh, we shot those scenes, uh, uh, I talked to David. I said, "Hey, David, by any chance, do you have any of your original tribbles from the, from that first show?" And he says, "Yes, I've, I've got one." He said, "Would you consider bringing it in?" So there's a shot in the episode where um, Enterprise crew members are, are they're petting triples and playing with them. And you can see David on the floor, uh, kneeling on the floor, petting a triple. And the triple he's, he's petting is a triple from the original Trouble with Triples. That's amazing. It was a very special time and we knew it was special. We all had a blast. Um, it probably is, for me and probably for Michael as well, uh, one of the best memories of, of those years working on Star Trek. We attended space camp some, sometime in the early 90s. I'm not actually sure exactly when. We were working on Star Trek at Paramount Pictures and a bunch of people in the visual effects department uh, decided to, to mount an expedition to do a field trip. <laughs> and they said, hey, you wanna come along? Oh, are you kidding? Don't have to ask twice. We took a couple of days off in the middle of production, which is probably not the brightest thing for us to have done. <laughs> what, what was it like to try and experience that as a, as a grown-up? You have to remember these were maybe adults in in chronological age, but they were all kids at heart. So <laughs> yeah, we were uh, a bunch of kids. They were just, I mean, a bunch of space geeks having fun. And acting like kids. I mean, they're, they're, you wouldn't know they were adults. Right. But kids who kids who wanted to not crash the spaceship. Oh yeah. I mean, they were. <laughs> this was serious. I remember one time, Mike and who was the other commander? I can't remember his name. Uh, you, um, the, the guy who was my co-pilot. Yeah, your co-pilot. Yeah, that, that was Maury uh, Rosenfeld. Yeah, we weren't in any particular simulation or anything. It wasn't, it was downtime. And I found them in the cockpit with the manual going through the steps, 
We, we went through all the just emergency procedures. Just because they wanted to. <laughs> and, it, and it came in handy because, yes, it because did. Uh, the next day we were doing a sim and we ran into a situation where, uh, ah, I know where that switch is. Flip. <laughs> It's it's very immersive experience. It's almost like a, a like a live action role playing game or something. Oh, very much yes. <laughs> That's what real simulations are. They're the role playing games to to uh, to see what would you do in that situation. How do you solve that? <laughs> Interestingly enough, our current project, one of our current projects, is we're um, technical advisors on the Apple TV Plus series uh, for all mankind. Basically, we review scripts and rough cuts and then when needed go into uh, the studio into Sony studio and be there on set to uh, help the the actors uh, push the right button in the limb or or whatever and also be there for the director and the writers if there are any other other questions so um, you know Mike's experience working on Star Trek in a, a fake universe uh, kind of fast forward into us working in a, a alternate universe, which for all mankind is, right. but still uh, rooted in science. What would you say is the, the the coolest contribution that you got to make to to the Star Trek franchise? Probably the most visually significant was creating the graphic style of uh, computer displays and controls in the next generation era what's become known as the as the Elkar style and that was born of um, trying to figure out uh, production necessities you know how do you stay in budget uh, how, how do you stay on schedule how do you make use best use of available resources it, it was a pr- very practical way to, to make uh, very tech looking uh, very futuristic looking displays it became part of this of the, the look of uh, of that era, Star Trek. So I'm, I'm I'm very proud of having done that. I read a story about the Heisenberg compensator. The Heisenberg compensator came. From, oh, I, I was doing the uh, um, I was laying out the control panels in the uh, in the transporter room. Most of the buttons and and, and system labels you uh, you tend to put uh, random numbers and codes there, right? Because very frankly, it's not worth your time. If you took the time to figure out what every button did, it's it's not a good use of your time. Right. Uh, uh, if it took me half a day to do that, I could I could have put that time into something that that actually was actually seen on the screen. But there was this control. There was this big wall display panel behind the transporter operator that probably would get a fair bit of camera time. So I uh, I actually did try to label at least some of the elements with. Uh, with words that I hoped you might see on, on a real transporter. And I remember reading a nonfiction book by Arthur C. Clarke, Profiles of the Future, in which he discussed uh, the problems of teleportation. And he said, and one of the issues was, uh, was Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And he thought that might be a, a fundamental problem with, uh, um, with the transporter. So I thought about that and I said, "What's this, uh, how would a good science fiction writer solve that? And you can think of a lot of elaborate, ingenious schemes, but at the end of it, it becomes a black box. It's a Heisenberg compensator. <laughs> so I, so I, I just put a little, uh, one of these elements in the, in the system schematic, I said, was, was 
Heisenberg compensation. And that's where it came from. I take a lot of pride. We all took a lot of pride in um, in doing the work as professionally as we could, um, but also enjoying it and thinking about all those 12 year old kids out there to what the shows that we were working on might mean to them as much as when Mike and I were kids and we were watching the original series. new water experiences in the underwater astronaut tank at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center allow you to experience what it's like to swim in a coral reef, float in outer space, and fly with the dragons in the DIVR plus water excursion. Combining a waterproof virtual reality headset with the snorkel system, you can explore new depths right from the comfort of our heated scuba tank. Museum admission is required, and advanced ticket purchase is encouraged to reserve your time for participants ages 7 and up. Visit rocketcenter.com today for more information. I've always been fascinated with NASA mission patches. The, the cool designs, the sense of bravado, the fact that these represent uh, not just the astronauts, but all the men and women who, who make possible these, uh, uh, these extraordinary adventures. And, uh, and 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 just the uh, the sense of adventure captured in, in in those in those designs. In the wake of the Columbia accident, NASA was planning a new initiative uh, that became Constellation. And I remember uh, writing to uh, uh, Admiral Seidel, Craig Seidel, who was uh, who was manager of the program at the time, and saying, "Hey, I'd like to design an emblem for your, uh, for your program." So he became in charge of something called the Exploration Systems Mission Director. So I, I designed an emblem for that and sent it in. And I guess the word got around. William Foster, who is a ground control officer at uh, Johnson Space Center, contacted me and said, hey, I want to do something to commemorate these lost crews. So he and I developed something that we called the um, Spaceflight Memorial Emblem, which is uh, I'm proud to say now hangs on the on the wall of mission control next to the uh, mission patches for uh, for Apollo One, for Challenger Fifty One L, and for Columbia uh, One Hundred and Seven. And that led to uh, doing the uh, uh, mission operations director patch for uh, Jeff Hanley. But my favorite single patch was um, uh, one day I was contacted by uh, John Grunsfield who was the lead spacewalker on STS-125. And he asked, would I be interested in, in contributing to patch design? So all those other patches were cool, but, but just to see astronauts on EVA fixing the Hubble Space Telescope uh, wearing my patch, that was cool. Uh, John invited us down to the Cape to uh, watch the launch. So, uh, of course, we went. It was very cool. NASA gave you their exceptional public service medal for your work on, on all of their patches for the Constellation program and, and, and the others that you did. That was, that was amazing. We went down to the, uh, uh, we went down to, you know, to Johnson Space Center uh, as guests of, of Jeff Hanley, and we got to tour the, uh, 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 the historic Apollo uh, mission control room, the, the current shuttle control rooms, um, we had lunch with uh, at, at the, the food laboratory with uh, uh, enjoying astronaut food. 
Uh, I got to crash the Orion docking simulator. <laughs> but yeah, to uh, to be honored amongst all those people was uh, uh, was was quite a thing. Very humbling. Did the two of you ever have feelings about wanting to actually go to space? Would love to, but uh, again, I'm, I'm certainly not qualified. <laughs> But if you uh, if, if you have an inside, you know, let us know. I think we both would. I mean, we, we would both jump at the chance if somebody offered it to us. Um, but, you know, that just wasn't in our future. I mean, we, we I certainly wasn't astronaut material. Like I said, I didn't. Um, chemistry and physics and math were not my forte. So I went into the, a different branch of the sciences. Um, but. Uh, of course, and of course we'd love to go. I mean, um... but can, uh, can can I say that our current job on uh, Apple TVs for All Mankind, uh, we we work a lot in mission control, and we also get to, get to hang around in in, in, the, in the various spacecraft. So uh, uh, we got to fly alongside Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, or at least our version of them, when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. We got to fly along this season in uh, of for all mankind in in their on their space shuttles, and uh, and we got we got to work on uh, on the Jamestown moon base. I mean, who would think that we would be learning how to run the disky in in the LEM? I mean, it was a dream come true. I mean, we we uh, pinched ourselves all the time. The first season when we were in Apollo for for all mankind was was really really special. Study as many things as you can in as many areas as you can and do as many things as you can because you never know what tomorrow will bring. The world is always changing. The world will always continue to change. So keep learning. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore. This time, and I'll let you know.